Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Morning's reading is from John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks be to God. just in case it happens again. Good morning again, everybody. Monday, the 13th of September, 2010, is a day I will never forget. So far, at least, it was the worst day of my life. It began as a normal day, In fact, it was planned to be quite a special day. On the Sunday, I had preached at a tiny, remote, rural church 
in the Kenyan Diocese of Kitui, which was where my wife and I were serving as mission partners with CMS. We had stayed overnight in the nearest small town, a town called Chuso. And that Monday morning, we were going to visit a nursery in a remote village called Gasigongo. We were traveling with the vicar of Chuso. It was one of our favorite churches, and the vicar was our good friend, the Reverend Daniel Matunga. And it was a special day because we were going there to deliver a chest of educational toys and books and other educational resources that we had bought with money raised by members of the Rock here at Emmanuel. Little did I know as we set off that morning that in the next six hours, Daniel and I would be involved in not just one but two serious car accidents. The roads in that area are all unsurfaced. And about five kilometers out of Chuso, on a slight right-hand bend, I lost control of our vehicle. It turned sideways, rolled over, and we slid along on the roof rack for a distance until we hit a bank on the opposite side of the road and somehow, I can't even now work out how, the uh, car flipped again and ended up sitting back on its wheels. And although, although I didn't realize it at the time, the car was facing back the way we had come. All three of us got out of the car and were uninjured, apart from Yeritsa having a broken thumbnail and a slight scratch on my head where the roof had caved in. The car was not uninjured. Here are some photos that I took at the scene. The people who saw that accident couldn't believe it, couldn't believe that we had emerged from the car under, uh, without help and, and were uninjured. We later discovered from the police that three people who had an identical accident in an identical vehicle on the same bend a week earlier were still in hospital in Nairobi. Like most Kenyans in rural areas, they had not been wearing seatbelts. In the days that followed, many of my Kenyan friends, when they heard about this, would say to me, God protected you. Yes, I would reply, but I don't believe he would have done if we had not been wearing our seatbelts. The real miracle, I believe, was that just a minute before I crashed our car, I swerved to avoid a donkey in the road. And Daniel, who had been traveling with us all that weekend, sitting in the back of the car, remembered that we had said that he should fasten his seatbelt. And he did so just a minute before the car overturned. When one of our friends here at Emmanuel heard that, being knowledgeable in the Old Testament, she said, God still speaks through donkeys. If you don't know what that's about, ask me afterwards. Needless to say, our visit to the Gasigongo nursery had to be postponed. We did go, though, a week later in a borrowed Land Rover 
to deliver the toys. And here are some photos of some happy children and a very happy teacher receiving those gifts provided courtesy of the, the members of the rock. The police attended the accident and kindly took us back to Chuso. They took me to the police station to make a statement and Daniel and Yeritzer and I then spent much of the day in Daniel's vicarage. Five hours later, Daniel and I returned to the scene in the most dilapidated breakdown truck I have ever seen. I wish I'd taken a photograph of it. It didn't have a petrol cap. Uh, there were other things that were missing. In fact, my car, even after the accident, looked a lot better than the, 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 the tow truck. But we had the car towed away, and Daniel and I got into a taxi that was going to take us back to where Yeritsa was waiting for us in his vicarage. I was sitting in the back, and I phoned her to tell her we were on the way. And while I was still speaking to her, we were involved in a second, more serious accident. A man on a bicycle wobbled in front of the taxi, hit his head on the windscreen, and died shortly afterwards at the scene, only about a kilometre or so from where the first accident happened. That was a much more traumatic experience than the first accident. We waited for hours for the police to arrive, sitting in the blazing sun behind this poor man's dead body, beside this poor man's dead body. And the same police crew arrived eventually and were astonished to find two of the same people involved in this second accident. If you are one of the people who used to pray for us regularly while we were serving it in Kenya and wonder why you've never heard that story, the answer is that we couldn't put that in our newsletters that were going far and wide because one of the people who would have read it was my mother. And we didn't want her to hear that news until she had seen me face to face. But the Global Mission Committee knew about it and I have to say were incredibly supportive during the days that followed, uh, in particular the late Mike Samuel, and I want to pay tribute to him because Liz is here. I've always wanted to tell that story uh, here at Emmanuel, and I've got the excuse to do it today because it gives the context for what happened the following day as Daniel and Yeritsa and I were being driven back to Kitui. As we went through a particular village, to my surprise, the driver pulled to the side of the road and stopped. Daniel's window was then wound down and lots of excited people had gathered and were reaching into the car and touching him. And they were obviously excited to see him. They were all speaking at the same time in Kikamba, which was a language I found difficult to understand at the best of times and certainly was impossible to understand at the speed and excitement that they were speaking. And so I asked what was going on. And Daniel explained, this was his home village. These were his friends and family. And they had heard about the events of the previous day. They couldn't believe that Daniel was not either dead or seriously injured. 
They couldn't believe it when they heard that he had emerged from those accidents uninjured. They needed to see him, and they insisted on touching him to satisfy themselves that he really was alive and unharmed. And that experience comes back to mind whenever I read the words of Thomas in verse 25 of our reading, John chapter 20. Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it, i.e. I will not believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In a country with a very high incidence of death and serious injury on the roads, Daniel's relatives needed evidence to satisfy themselves that Daniel had survived two serious crashes completely unharmed. They were a bit less concerned about me. But Daniel was a person they knew and loved. Thomas knew and loved Jesus. And in a world where, by and large, people don't rise from the dead, he required better evidence than the say-so of his colleagues before he would believe that Jesus really was alive. He wanted to see him in person and to touch him. And the context of Thomas' statement as we heard in our reading, is that it follows the appearance of Jesus to his other disciples on the evening of the day that he rose from the dead. It was for the disciples the end of a very confusing and emotional day. As darkness fell that evening, the only things they knew for sure were that the tomb where the body of Jesus had been laid was empty, that the body of Jesus was missing, but the grave clothes had been found still in place where Jesus' body had been laid to rest. The women had talked about a vision of angels saying that Jesus had risen, and Mary Magdalene claimed that she had seen him but they didn't believe her. It all seemed too far-fetched, surreal. And so in the evening, they were, John says, together behind locked doors, afraid of what might happen to them. And when John states that the disciples were together, it's not just the eleven. Luke also gives us a report of Jesus appearing that same evening and tells us that others were there with them, almost certainly including Mary Magdalene and the other women who witnessed the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, and two believers who had just returned hotfoot from Emmaus. That's another story. Only after telling his readers about Jesus' appearance that night does Thomas add in verse 24 that Thomas was absent? We're not told why. We're not told where he was. But John does mention that he was called Didymus. 
a Greek word meaning the twin. We don't know who his twin was, whether he was one of the other disciples, presumably not, whether he was a believer, maybe. But speaking as the father of twins, I can well understand that at such a traumatic time, the person Tom needed to be with most was his twin, especially if he was an introvert. Perhaps for Thomas, being surrounded by a group of people, all of them grieving, was torture. Perhaps he needed to get away to grieve alone or to grieve with his twin. Whatever the reason, Thomas missed out big time. According to John's brief account, Jesus gave the disciples four significant things that evening. And they all begin with the, word, with the letter P. The first thing he gave them was peace. He calmed their fears twice with the familiar Hebrew greeting, Shalom, peace be with you, is the translation in our English Bibles. Shalom means more than the English word peace. It's come into many African languages as salam or similar words, meaning perfect wholeness, total well-being. It was a word to reassure the, the disciples in their fear. After peace, he gave them proof. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his side to demonstrate that it was he and that he was alive. Luke tells us that he also invited them to touch him and that he deliberately ate some fish in front of them to prove that he was not a ghost. They are convinced. They are overjoyed to realize that it's true. He is alive. Mary was, was right. They are like Daniel's excited relations in that village in Kenya, but more so because they had never been told that Daniel was dead. He gave them peace and proof. And then he gave them a purpose. He commissioned them. In verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So, if we look at the New Testament to see how Jesus was sent, that is the way he was sending his disciples, and in turn, that is the way that he sends us to serve him in the world. So Jesus was sent in an attitude of humility. So are they. Jesus was sent not to be served, but to serve. So are they. Jesus was sent to show people what God is like, to reveal the Father. So are they. Jesus was sent to preach, practice, and demonstrate God's love in forgiveness. So are they. And their responsibility to forgive is emphasized in verse 23. 
Jesus was sent to proclaim good news, to heal the sick, and to set free the oppressed. So are they. And so are we. The disciples of Jesus are called to continue the ministry he began. Their purpose, our purpose, is to continue his work with the same attitude of caring compassion. And having given them that purpose, the fourth thing he gave was power. He empowered them for this ministry, inviting them to receive the Holy Spirit, symbolically breathing on them. And the significance of that is that in Greek, the word pneuma, which means breath, also means spirit. It's also the same word in Hebrew. They are not to do these things in their own strength, but in the same power that was at work in Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Same is true of us as we continue that mission centuries later. Peace, proof, purpose, and power. It's a preacher's dream, isn't it? But poor Thomas, he missed all that. Let's just try to imagine how difficult the following week was for Thomas. How difficult that evening was for Thomas when he returned and all his colleagues were buzzing. They tell him they've seen Jesus and that he's alive. But Thomas, poor Thomas, can't believe it. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Let's imagine his thoughts and feelings that week. They were celebrating the greatest news imaginable, and he was still grieving the brutal loss of his close friend. They were full of joy. He was still deep in sorrow. And when you're feeling down, there's nothing worse than being surrounded by jolly, happy people. They were full of faith. He was still struggling with unanswered questions about what had happened. They had new hope. He was still in deep despair. They had changed radically. And he was still the same old Thomas. Thomas had missed out. And I think we sometimes forget that as Thomas went through that agony during that week, not one of them knew whether Jesus would ever appear again. He hadn't left saying, I'll see you at the same time next week. They never knew whether Thomas would ever get to meet the risen Lord. Was it that he had missed out permanently? It was a possibility. It went on for a week, but it could have been forever. And the more joyful they were, the more frustrated he was. It just didn't seem fair for him to be left out. Was his belief, was his disbelief unreasonable? 
After all, the others had all responded to Mary with the same disbelief. In the longer ending of Mark's gospel, which admittedly was written sometime after the the rest of the gospel, we read this. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. According to Luke's account of the first Sunday evening appearance, the others had been invited to look at Jesus' wounds and touch him, the very evidence that Thomas later demanded. In Luke 24, we read, They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Thomas was only asking for the same opportunity that all the others had been given. And why shouldn't he? I think it's harsh that he should be known forever as Doubting Thomas, as if that were a derogatory title and as if that were unique to him. They had all doubted until Jesus appeared to them. Not one of the disciples believed in the resurrection on the basis of the empty tomb alone. It seems to me that Thomas' response was completely reasonable. It is good to question things and not to believe everything that we're told. In the 1990s, my wife and I came under the influence of a charismatic Christian leader. We took our family to summer camps near Peterborough where we could hear him preaching to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. We learned a lot from him. But the day I heard him say in the middle of a sermon, you do not need to question this, this is from God, I knew he had gone too far. None of us who have the privilege of preaching is above contradiction. And it's our responsibility as members of the congregation, and I'm usually a member of the congregation, to read the Bible for ourselves, to weigh what the preacher says, and to discern for ourselves what God is saying, either through the preacher or despite the preacher. Oscar Wilde said, skepticism is the beginning of faith. Perhaps it was for Thomas. A week later, Jesus appeared again, and Thomas was offered the proof he asked for. Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now here's a question to think about. Do you think that Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds? Or was seeing enough? I cannot help wondering, I've I've always believed that um, with Jesus standing bodily in front of him, 
it would have seemed crass and insensitive to accept that invitation and actually insist on touching his wounds. We don't know the answer. But I think probably he didn't. Partly because of what Jesus says next. John simply states Thomas's response. Convinced now by what he sees that, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he worships him with a confession of faith. My Lord and my God. And Jesus' ne- next words, spoken to Thomas, uh, are spoken, I believe, with future generations in mind. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That suggests that seeing was enough for Thomas. Thomas and his fellow disciples were privileged to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Now John was there on both occasions when the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem. He was also there when Jesus subsequently appeared to them beside the lake in Galilee, which is reported in chapter 21. Towards the end of the first century, he decided to write down what he knew about Jesus, including that exchange with Thomas, which he saw and heard, and he did so for the future of for the benefit of future generations, those who don't have that privilege. And he states his purpose in the closing verse of our reading. These are written that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That includes us. We believe on the basis of the testimony of John, Peter, and the other apostles who saw the risen Lord. Their testimony is recorded, part of it at least, in our scripture. And we also believe because of our own rather different experience of the risen Christ who promised to be with his followers to the end of the age and who lives in us by his spirit. Jesus tells us in this verse 29 that we are blessed because although we've not had the privilege of seeing him, yet we have believed. God gave us minds and he doesn't expect us to disengage them when it comes to matters of faith. We are invited to consider the evidence and to respond in faith where the evidence reaches the limit of what it's able to prove. Thomas's experience, recorded by John who was there, is part of that evidence. If you were to ask me why I was a Christian, my answer would be this. I am a Christian because I am convinced that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And therefore, I believe that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God and one with God. Looking at all the evidence, like the lawyer that I used to be long, long ago, and all the suggested explanations of that empty tomb 
the one that the women found on the first Easter day, I am convinced that the most credible explanation, indeed the only reasonable explanation, is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. I can't prove it. The evidence takes me so far, leads me to reject every other suggested explanation, and then a leap of faith is required. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that is the central fact that has shaped my whole life since my early teenage years. So if you've never done so, I invite you this Eastertide, Eastertide goes on for 40 days until Ascension Day, so there's plenty of time to do it, to consider the evidence again. The accounts we have of the appearances Jesus made to his followers after he had been raised from the dead are found in the last two chapters of John's Gospel, the last chapter of Luke, and the last chapter of Matthew. And they're one or two passages that you can uh, find also in the letters of the New Testament. If you'd like to hear why I find the evidence convincing and why all the other suggested explanations of the empty tomb I find unconvincing, I'd be happy to meet you for a coffee and talk about it. My prayer is that we may all respond to our risen Saviour as Thomas did, saying to Jesus and of Jesus that he is our Lord and our God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we praise you that you were in Christ and that by his death on the cross and by raising him from the dead, you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord Jesus, risen from the tomb, you met with Mary in a garden. Meet with us in the ordinary places of our lives. You met with John, Thomas, and the other disciples as they hid behind closed doors in Jerusalem. Meet with us wherever we are afraid. You, you turned the disciples' grief into joy. Transform our sorrows. You turned the disciples' fear into boldness. Send us out, confident in the power of your Spirit, to be your servants and witnesses in the world. You turned the disciples' doubt into, into belief. Touch our minds that we may think clearly and speak boldly about you. Though we have not seen you, we are blessed to believe in you our risen Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram 
to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Thank you.